Good evening. Good to see you tonight. If you got your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 is uh, where we'll be at tonight. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Daniel. Uh, we've been doing this uh, series of just walking through the book of Daniel for a couple months now. And uh, just to let everybody know, it will be a few more weeks before we get back to Daniel. We've got a few different things going on the next few weeks. Let me give you a heads up of what we're doing. Uh, so next week is the second Sunday of December, so we'll do our second Sunday singing over in the uh, small auditorium. One little difference there, we will not have the Finger Food Fellowship afterwards, because uh, so, we're going to save that one for the next Wednesday, the third Wednesday, uh, not Wednesday, Sunday, the third Sunday, let me just confuse you as much as I can, the third Sunday this month, the 18th, uh, Bo, since he's leaving at the end of this year, he's going to be speaking and preaching for us uh, the 18th. So he'll speak that evening, uh, and then we'll have a fellowship meal afterwards or a finger food fellowship afterwards, probably in the uh, fellowship hall to kind of celebrate Bo. Uh, so if you, uh, I think it's been in the bulletin, but if you have any gift or anything like that that you want to give to Bo, that'd be a good time to do it. He'll be here with us uh, that evening, so make sure that you do that. Uh, and then the next Sunday is December 25th. And we think we've announced this, but just to make sure you've heard it, uh, on Sunday, December 25th, we're only going to have worship service at 10 a.m. Okay, there will be no morning Bible class and no evening worship uh, that day. So just Sunday uh, service at 10 a.m. on Sunday the 25th. All right, I encourage you guys to spend time with your families and that sort of thing that you're probably going to be doing anyway. Uh, so we want to make sure that you have the opportunity, of course, to worship God, but also to spend some time with your family and travel around as you may need. So uh, Daniel chapter 8 is where we are at. Um, I'm not going to lie, this is a pretty deep chapter. There's a lot to talk about, and uh, we're going to not go into all the details because the details that we're going to cover are going to take long enough, probably longer than I want them to be. I'd love to say, hey, don't fall asleep on this, uh, but you'll notice as we go through Daniel chapter 8 that there's an angel talking to Daniel, and Daniel falls asleep. So I don't know that I can really say that very easily for you not to fall asleep tonight, but try and pay attention. Uh, there's really two points. Uh, that I want you to get out of it. First of all, Daniel chapter 8, probably uh, in my study of the Bible personally, and there may be more study that I need to do, always is, uh, but in my study of the Bible personally, Daniel chapter 8 has more powerful predictive prophecy than anywhere else in the Bible. There are specific things that are mentioned here that come about exactly how it's mentioned. There are some pretty uh, broad strokes that are exactly addressed by what Daniel chapter 8 talks about. Uh, and we can take great comfort in that. It's, it's so specific uh, that people who don't believe in God, people who don't believe in uh, the ability to prophesy and that sort of thing, they think Daniel chapter 8 must have been written after the fact. It's that specific. Okay, and again, we'll mention some of those details tonight, but we won't take the time to go into all of those details tonight. Uh, and then secondly, at the very end of the chapter, Daniel, who's this guy who we talked about last week too, um, you know, he's the guy who can interpret dreams and understand what dreams mean, and God gives him that, that revelation. Oh, and in Daniel chapter 7, he struggles with it a little bit. In Daniel chapter 8, he struggles with it a lot, okay? He struggles with even, even what his, he is told, he struggles with how can that be? How can that actually happen? I don't understand. And we'll, we'll take some comfort from uh, the end of the chapter as well as maybe we have been there at certain points in our life. God, how are you allowing this to happen? How are you using this? How are you using that? Okay, so let's just hop into uh, Daniel chapter 8. We're not going to read all the verses, but we're going to read most of them. Uh, so I hope that you'll follow along and uh, let's see what we can learn from uh, Daniel chapter 8. So it says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one which appeared to me previously. Okay, so just setting the stage here, 
because it's been a while since we've been here. In Daniel chapter 7, he has his first vision that he tells us about. Remember, the first six chapters are the, the narrative of Daniel, and the latter part of the book is more he's going back, and I've des- described it as those, those in-credit scenes at the end of movies. He's, he's giving us a little bit more detail about some things that didn't really have to do with his story, uh, but have to do with things that are going to happen uh, in the future in different ways. And here he says, in the third year of King Belshazzar, If you go back to chapter 5, Belshazzar is the king. He's the last king of Babylon. And Daniel chapter 5, on the very night in which uh, the handwriting is on the wall, where he's been weighed and found wanting, uh, Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, he comes and takes over Babylon. Okay? So that's where we're at. Uh, That's about seven. So he's about, in Daniel chapter 8, we're about seven years from the end of Daniel chapter 5. Again, it's not chronological, so it gets a little confusing, okay? Uh, but that's, that's where we're at. This is year 3 of about 10 years of the reign of Belshazzar. At the end, uh, year 10, that's Daniel chapter 5, where he dies that night, uh, and uh, the Medes and the Persians through Cyrus and Darius uh, come and, and take over the kingdom. So that's where we're at. Or two, uh, he says, And I looked in the vision, and it happened that while I was looking, I was at the citadel in Susa, uh, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, but with a longer one coming up last. All right, so let's look at, look at verse 2. Kind of does almost a throwaway verse if we don't appreciate a couple things here. He's in the citadel at Susa. Uh, well, Susa is important because, okay, so... Third year of King Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. Next come the Medes and the Persians. Okay, they're kind of a combined kingdom. Later on, the Persians will overtake and it will become known more in secular history, certainly, as the Persian Empire. You probably heard the Persian Empire more than you've heard of the Medes and the Persians, okay? The Persian Empire, and Susa specifically, Susa will become the capital of the Persian Empire. Nehemiah, Ezra, and Esther is the queen of Persia. And Nehemiah and Esther happen in Susa, which is where he is at in this vision. Okay, Susa is an important place. I honestly don't know exactly why he is in the vision. He's in Susa. I don't know the significance of that. It's not revealed to us, uh, but there's a connection. The Medes and the Persians is going to become the Persian Empire. Esther is a queen of Persia. It's an important place in biblical history, okay? Uh, even later on when Nehemiah uh, goes and wants to rebuild the wall, he's going and talking to the Persian king for permission to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the empire. And when Ezra, who's rebuilding the, the temple, uh, and there's people who are arguing against that, well, they write back to the Persian king to complain about what the Jews are doing. Okay, so this, this whole history is, is all connected, uh, and just to, to appreciate that. Then the vision really starts in verse 3, and he sees a ram. And of course, this ram has two horns, uh, and it notices that specifically there's this, uh, uh, this detail that one horn is bigger, and it's the second one that's bigger. Okay, well, if you look in verse 21, or verse 20, thankfully, in verse 20 and 21, uh, sometimes God does this, and sometimes God doesn't do this. He tells us who the ram is. He says the ram is the Medes and the Persians, okay? And then in verse 21, it tells us that there's going to be a goat that comes up, and this goat is the kingdom of Greece, okay? So thankfully, we know this, all right? And, and, and here's the predictive prophecy. Daniel, God through Daniel, names not only talks about these powers, but he names the powers, and some of the details that he gives about what these powers will do is exactly what these powers do. Okay, 
And I'll tell you in a little while just how, how much of a distance there is between the prophecy and the fulfillment of these things, and you will be impressed, okay? Uh, but the specific things that are named, that's exactly what happens. So when it talks about this, this ram that has two horns and one's longer than the other one, uh, and then verse 20 tells us, well, that those rams and the horns, those are the Medes and the Persians. Well, why would one horn be longer than the other one or bigger than the other one? Because the Persian Empire outshined the, Mede, the, the Median Empire, okay? It was greater, it was stronger, it was mightier. That's the detail that we're getting there. In verse 4, I saw the ram uh, budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before it, nor was there anyone uh, to deliver from its power, but it uh, did as it pleased and magnified itself, okay? Again, another detail that's, that's interesting that I, I didn't write the, take the time to, to write the specific kingdoms down, but we know from secular history outside the Bible that when the Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, they conquered significant empires to the west of them, to the north of them, and to the south of them, just like verse 4 says that the ram will conquer. And there are specific battles that were fought against specific empires that existed at the time uh, that the Medes and the Persians, the Persians especially, uh, take care of. Verse number five. And he says, and while I was considering, so just think about, and this is, this is kind of, that's a, that's a good phrase to think about how, how Daniel is going to be at the end of this, okay? So he sees the ram, he sees the horns, and he's not told at this point who that means, who that is. He may or may not even know the Medes and the Persians exist at this point. They're still seven years away from the fall of Babylon, okay? So he may know of them, but they're not the great power that they're going to be quite yet, okay? Uh, but he says, I'm considering this. I'm stopping and I'm thinking about this, but the vision moves on to something else. Have you ever been there? Been in math class? And I've, I've never actually seen this, but I've heard horror stories of professors, you know, writing the, the math lesson down and then following it with the eraser. Have you experienced something like that or heard those stories? I think that's kind of what Daniel's feeling like. There's this, he's, there's this revelation that he's never heard of before. He knows nothing about what it is. He's trying to stop and think about it. And then the writer just moves on and goes on to something else. So he's feeling overwhelmed, okay? And that's just the beginning of how he's going to feel at the end of this chapter, okay? Uh, verse number five. While I was considering, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. Then it came up to the ram, uh, that had the two horns, which uh, I had seen standing in front of the canal, and ran at it with all of its strength, with all its strong wrath, excuse me. And uh, I saw it reach the, the side of the ram, and it was enraged at it, and it struck the ram and broke it into two, its two horns into pieces, and the ram had no strength to stand in opposition to it, so it threw it down to the ground and trampled on it, and there was no one to deliver the ram from its power. Okay, so here we have this other power, uh, this, this male goat that shows up, uh, and it's got a, a horn between its eyes, a conspicuous horn, because we don't generally think of rams having or goats having horns like this necessarily. Uh, but it's got one right in between its eyes. And again, in verse uh, 21, it tells us this goat is, beyond the shadow of a doubt, Greece. Okay, so we know that. All right? And it's got this conspicuous horn, this, this great and, and, and powerful horn. It tells us, again in verse 21, uh, that this king, or that this horn is a king. And it says the first king of this empire. Now, let me remind you something we've talked about previously, not only in Daniel, but in other books as well. Sometimes when it says first, it's not chronological, it's might. Okay, this is the foremost king. This is the greatest king of the empire, okay? Well, who's the greatest king of the Grecian empire? Alexander the Great, okay? Now, Alexander's not named in scripture, but the things that the scriptures talk about what this horn does, Alexander fulfills them Perfectly. Perfectly. He's definitely the, the foremost, the greatest, the first 
uh, king of the, of the Grecian Empire, uh, and he fulfills the things that are talked about. And we'll, we'll talk about some of those, but there's even more to it uh, than what we'll think about, okay? Uh, so he is more than likely, I would say certainly that he is, uh, this, this horn that he's talking about. Again, in verse 21, it says he's the, the first king of this empire and does uh, these things. It says that, they, uh, that the ram comes, and it says that he's moving so fast that he's not even touching the ground. Uh, well, there's never been, certainly before uh, Alexander the Great, and, and arguably since Alexander the Great, an empire that has spread as quickly as uh, Alexander the Great's empire spread. Uh, it was just um, amazingly how fast he was able to, to spread his empire uh, across uh, large portions of, of the earth. So there's the, the imagery there that it's not even touching the earth as it's, as it's running. Uh, it talks about how the, the ram comes with wrath and rage, uh, at, or the goat comes with wrath and rage at the ram. Uh, historians note uh, that there were times about 150 years before Alexander the Great when uh, the Medes and the Persians tried to come and conquer the area of Greece or the area of Macedonia, okay, which would have been northern Greece, but they, they failed, but apparently the Greeks held a grudge against them, or at the very least, Alexander the Great used that as some, uh, some bulletin board material, right? Uh, you've heard of that bulletin board material when there's sports and somebody on one team says something about the team that they're about to play and they, they post that and say, hey, we're really going to get these guys because they've been talking about how bad of a team you are, right? Well, Alexander, 150 years afterwards, okay, Alexander the Great was a fantastic military leader, okay? No doubt about it. Tactics-wise, power, might. I mean, he was, he's one of the best who's ever done it, all right? And he uses this kind of tactic to say, hey, do you remember... When your grandparents or your great-grandparents were attacked by these, these Medes and these Persians, well, those are the guys we're going to go fight right now. And so when he comes and he attacks, uh, we, we see that, you know, in Acts chapter, or Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1, it starts with Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians. The Medes and the Persians are going to come. And then later Greece is going to be the next great kingdom, which is the same order of powers that has been talked about previously also in Daniel. So there's some failed attempts by Persia to conquer Greece. And later on, Alexander is going to use that as bulletin board material, if you will. Then verse 8, uh, the male goat uh, magnified itself exceedingly. Uh, but as soon as it was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up uh, four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Okay, so uh, it says that the, the male goat, the, the kingdom of Greece, magnified itself exceedingly. We can think about that in two ways. Uh, certainly Greece was a massive empire. Its empire was from Greece all the way to India. It's estimated that 1.5 million square miles were a part of the kingdom or the empire of Greece. You can also think about the horn or Alexander the Great uh, magnifying himself towards the end of his reign. He asked those who were under him to call him God. Okay, so he's magnifying himself. And notice that right at, right at its power, it loses its power, okay? Uh, as soon as it was mighty, verse 8 says, the large horn was broken. They're specifically talking about the large horn. If that's Alexander the Great, which we would think that it is, that I think that it is at least, uh, that, that right, at, right when he becomes strong, he loses his power. Alexander the Great dies at 32. He's not an old man. He's still in the middle of, uh, of fighting. As a matter of fact, I believe he's coming back from, from India uh, when he becomes sick and he dies from conquering some some places in India or in that area and he's coming back and he he dies during or shortly after the trip back when right when he becomes mighty he's taken down all right so again these these things line up and help us to understand this also talking about four conspicuous horns we've already talked about this with the previous vision uh, after Alexander the Great's uh, empire his kingdom that vast empire that stretches uh, from from Greece to northern Africa to all of Palestine all the way over into India it's broken up into four kingdoms. 
So the great horn, Alexander the Great, is destroyed, and it's broken up into four horns shore up. And his kingdom, his empire, is broken up into four uh, different empires. Okay, verse 9. And out of one of them, okay, so out of one of the four kingdoms, again, we know that it's a kingdom because later on in the chapter we're told that those are four kingdoms, okay? Uh, Out of one of those four kingdoms, following Alexander the Great, is what verse 9 is about, out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, and it grew exceedingly great, towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful land, okay? The beautiful land, we'll be talking about the promised land, the land of Palestine, Jerusalem, uh, that area. Again, uh, this is the, um, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, the Seleucian kingdom. It's one of the four kingdoms uh, that is uh, following Alexander the Great. And again, that kingdom conquers things to the south, the east, and Palestine. Palestine, as a matter of fact, is one of the, the main places that there's a lot of Seleucian wars because... Uh, out of those four kingdoms, there's one, I don't remember the name of it, but it's in northern Egypt. It would be what we would think about as Egypt. And the other one is in Mesopotamia or Babylon, that area that we think about. What's in the middle of those two places? The promised land, Palestine. And it's constantly, there's constant battles there between these remnants of Alexander's empire, both of which are extremely powerful. Uh, remember that, 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 uh, that Egyptian kingdom would be where the city of Alexandria exists. Remember the great library of Alexandria, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world? Well, that's Alexander the Great, Alexandria. That's what it's named after, okay? So those two great remnants of Alexander the Great's empire, uh, they're both great, and they both fight each other for this middle ground, this promised land, this beautiful land uh, that Daniel calls it here, okay? So, uh, so there's this power that comes up. Um, It says uh, about that small horn in verse 9. Let's go to verse 10. Then it, the horn, uh, grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars uh, to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Okay, Uh, turn over to verse 23. Okay, so it's talking about this same horn in verse 23 and 25. And it says, In the latter period of their reign, of those four kingdoms, uh, when the transgression had run their course, a king will stand, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will will be mighty, but not his own power. And he will destroy to an astonishing degree and succeed and do his will. And he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And throughout his, and through his insight, he will cause, uh, deceit to, um, to succeed by his hand and he will magnify himself in his heart and he will destroy many while they are at ease and he will stand against the prince of, of peace the prince of princes uh, but he will be broken without hands okay if we look to history again there's another figure who fits this mold who, who comes into this and he's a Seleucian king uh, named named Antiochus the fourth Okay, and he is someone who, in history, many of the things that we just read in those verses and a few other things that we'll read in some other verses, he does those things specifically. Let me walk through uh, some, of, some of those with you, okay? Um, verse 24, his power will be mighty, but not his own power. Okay, well, Antiochus IV comes to power after his brother is assassinated, and his brother has a son who should be the next king of the Seleucian kingdom, uh, but Antiochus IV has him imprisoned. Okay, so his brother's dead, assassinated by somebody, not, I don't know exactly who, maybe by Antiochus himself. Uh, And then the next guy, the next king should be his son, but he imprisons him in Rome so that he can take uh, the power. So he fits, he comes, his power will be mighty, but not his own power. He wasn't supposed to be king, but he becomes king. 
Uh, he will destroy mighty men and the holy people, verse 24. Again, Antiochus IV, he leads specific campaigns against the Jews and against those who are in Palestine. So historically, he fits that mold. Uh, it says that he will magnify himself in his heart. Uh, his name means God manifested or God revealed. That's not unique to him. As we said already, Alexander the Great does that, uh, but, but he does that as well, so that's important to note. He will destroy many who are at ease, uh, and we know from history, uh, specifically with the Jews. Uh, he tells the Jews, hey, I want peace, and right as he begins to tell them that he wants peace, he attacks them. And we know specifically from history that he purposely attacks them on the Sabbath day, because what are Jews supposed to be doing on the Sabbath day? Not getting ready for war, Right? So he purposely attacks them on the Sabbath day. So again, while they are at ease, what's the Sabbath day? The day of rest, okay? So he's doing these things. He, he, the history matches the prophecy, uh, Antiochus IV fulfilling uh, these types of things. He'll even stand against the prince of peace, uh, the prince of princes. Um, we know uh, that he has, uh, when he comes in and he conquers Jerusalem, uh, he uh, has the Torah or the Old Testament law, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah. Uh, he has that burned publicly, uh, so we know that he does uh, those things. Uh, but it says at the end of verse 25, but he will be broken without hands. Uh, and again, we know from history, uh, from Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, also from at least one other historian, uh, that when he was dying and he's on his deathbed, he himself tells his friends, this calamity has come upon me because of what I have done to the Jews. Okay, he identifies himself seemingly. The reason I'm dying now is because God is getting back at me. Because I've done these things to God's people and now God is repaying me for my sins. So there are a number of things that he does. Here, here's some more. Go back to, to verse 11. Um, it's talking about the horn still, but that, if that re- replies to Antiochus IV, uh, then, then notice there's some correlation here, some connections here, okay? Uh, and it, or he, the horn, uh, even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. Again, the host being here, the Israelites, the commander of the host being God. We already talked about how he wanted to be called God or, or his name meant that. Uh, and it removed regular sacrifice from him and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And an account of the transgression of the host will be given over, uh, on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will throw down truth to the ground and do its will and succeed. Okay, so here's a few other things that we can think about, okay? Uh, we know that Antiochus IV comes into Jerusalem. Uh, we know that he, he robs from the temple like previous rulers have done. Uh, remember the very beginning of, of the, the book of Daniel, uh, when King Nebuchadnezzar comes, he takes the holy things out of the temple and takes them over to the temple of his God. Well, now Antiochus IV, he does the same thing. The horn does the same thing. There's a connection there. Uh, it says that he makes himself equal with God. He removes the regular sacrifice to him. We know that Antiochus IV, when he was ruling, he stopped temple worship. Okay? They, they were not to make sacrifice. They were not to, uh, to do any of the, the acts of worship that were a part of the temple system, a part of the Old Testament system. So he, he uh, fulfills these things. Um, it's, it's of note, verse 12, it says, on account of the transgression of the host... Okay, on account of the transgression of the host, they will be given to the horn. Okay, why, is the, why are these things happening? Or why are these things, it's a prophecy, why are these things going to happen? Why do these things happen under Antiochus IV? Because of the wickedness of, of the host. Now, Antiochus IV uh, comes in and raids Jerusalem, takes over Jerusalem, does all of these things in what we would call the intertestamental period. Okay, between the end of the Old Testament, before the beginning of the New Testament. Okay, and we know that during that time, 
We know from history, we know some, from some religious history, not biblical history. You probably have heard of the, the book of Maccabees, okay? Uh, that is not scripture, but it is Jewish history. Uh, and the, the Maccabees are, are a religious group, a, a priestly group during the time of all of this, this rampant um, idolatry. And that's what, what Antiochus does is he, he stops uh, the, the temple worship, the temple service, and he says, okay, here are the gods you need to serve instead. Here are the, the idols, here are the, the foreign gods that you need to be serving instead. And, and the book of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, tells us that, you know, idolatry is rampant during the end of the Old Testament all the way up to uh, Antiochus IV and his reign and those, those types of things. So, so he does this. We also know uh, that in uh, 167 uh, B.C., uh, he sacrifices a pig on the altar. Why is that a big deal? You know, pigs are unclean animals. Nothing unclean is supposed to be a part of this, this Jewish religion. So sacrificing a pig on the altar in the temple, that's a big deal. That's a spitting in the face of God kind of thing, okay? He's, he's, Antiochus IV absolutely does that. And it sounds like, you know, he's throwing down the truth to the ground and uh, stomping on it and, and those types of things. Uh, so, so he fits a, a lot of these uh, different types of things. So going back to the Maccabees real quick, not, not necessarily super important, but interesting, I think. As we think about this, uh, this is the part where you don't fall asleep, okay? Um, uh, the Maccabean Revolt, okay? So this, this militant religious group uh, revolts against uh, the Romans, and they're able to succeed. And, and later on, actually, when, uh, when the rulers die, when Antio- Antiochus IV uh, and, and other rulers, the, the last ruler of Persia, uh, when he dies, uh, he hears about uh, the, the defeat uh, by the Maccabeans of his armies in a couple of different places, one of those places being in and around Jerusalem and Israel. Okay, and the, the Maccabees, when they, when they come back, when they overthrow the Persian Empire and they come back, they are trying to uh, rededicate the temple. The temple is in shambles. Okay, there are uh, foreign uh, altars and foreign gods that are being worshipped inside the, the temple that belongs to God. And so they try and clean it all out and they try to rededicate the temple. Do you know what that's called today? Hanukkah. Okay, that's called Hanukkah. Did you know Jesus celebrated Hanukkah? In John chapter 10 and verse 22, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the time of the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication today is known as Hanukkah. It's not a religious mandated thing to the Old Testament Jews. It's certainly not religiously mandated to Christians today. But it is of note, it is interesting to me at least, that Jesus is there and participating in this rededication. And there's nothing, there's nothing significant about that necessarily for us but the the emphasis was that the Maccabeans instituted this was hey our temple is in shambles our temple has been used for unholy and perverse things we need to rededicate not only the temple we need to rededicate ourselves to God and that's certainly an idea that we can get behind right that we need to rededicate ourselves to God that the world that Christians need to rededicate ourselves to God so that's that's interesting to me uh certainly of note um so Antiochus IV uh, does all of these things. And then in verse 13 we have, so this is all vision, okay? You got the goat, or the, the ram with the two horns uh, that's uh, slain by the goat. You got this one, uh, one horn, Alexander the Great. Uh, he's broken and four horns come out. And then out of one of those four horns, there's another horn that comes out. And he's probably Antiochus IV. And, and all of these things are happening and just, it's confusing to me. And we're, you know, a few thousand years later. And we've, we, it's already come to be and we can understand it a little more. Imagine being Daniel trying to wrap his head around this. And then in verse 13 it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long? 
Will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply with the transgression while the transgression causes desolation so as to allow both the holy place and the, ho- and the host to be trampled? He said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be made righteous. All right, so there's some, some imagery there. There's some language there. He, he, and I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be able to explain to you what does it mean 23 mornings and evenings. I'm not going to be able to pretend to do that. But, but let me focus on one thing. The question is how long, which means there is what? An ending, okay? This is going to be terrible, and this is a holy one. This isn't Daniel asking this question. This is a holy one. Maybe we would say an angel asking another holy one, another angel, hey, how long is this going to last? This sounds terrible. How long is this going to last? How long is the daily sacrifice not going to happen? How long are, are the people of God, the hosts of heaven, how long are they going to be trampled upon? And, and the question is how long? And it sounds a lot like uh, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 10 and following, there's this scene in heaven where uh, the, the, the fire is burning, the, the incense is the, the prayers of the saints, and the question that they ask in Revelation is similar to the question the Holy One asks here is, how long, O Lord? How long will your people suffer? How long will you allow these things to happen? In Revelation, they're told, hey, wait just a little while longer until it's time. And here, basically, with what, 2,300 mornings and evenings? Very unlikely that that's literal, okay? Very unlikely that it's literal. The point is, it's not going to last forever. There will be an end. And, and, some people, some of our religious friends would say, okay, well, this is talking about Daniel chapter 8. Some other passages in Daniel is talking about the end of time. Well, that's not the question that the Holy One asked, was it? How long will this stopping of the daily sacrifice, how long will that last? How long will the, the suffering of God's holy people in Israel, how, the hosts, how long will that last? That's the question that is being asked and that it's answered in verses 15 and following. Not necessarily specifically but it is answered in this way. So let's keep going. Uh, verse 15. Now it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision. Okay, so he's seen the vision. Okay, a little bit different. There was a note in the, in the, again, the book that I'm studying of this. In Daniel chapter 7, he, he receives a vision, but it's a dream. Daniel chapter 8, it doesn't say that he's dreaming. It's a vision. I'm not going to pretend to absolutely know the difference there. Uh, the idea was presented that in Daniel chapter 7, he's dreaming, so he's not really able to, to interact. In Daniel chapter 8, he definitely is about to, to interact with this vision and try and understand and, and wrap his mind around this type of thing. Uh, but, but either way, he's, there's a lot of stress on Daniel right now, okay? Uh, he says, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who, who had an appearance of a man, Okay. Is this just another person? Is this an angelic being? Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, there's similar language there, and that language is absolutely talking about God. Is that God the Father? Is that God the Son? I can't tell you. I, I would say that this man here is likely God, Father, Son, Spirit, I'm not sure which, because of what he says, okay? He sees this man who's standing, uh, standing there with him, and he says in verse 16, and I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, uh, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of what has appeared, okay? So he's talking to Gabriel. Um, Gabriel, if this is who I think that it is, okay, and I'll give you some information here in a minute as to why I think that it is, uh, this is an angel, okay? And, and the first angel that's ever named in scripture chronologically, Okay, uh, we know Gabriel from other stories. Uh, in Luke chapter one, Gabriel is the one who who uh, appears to, to Zechariah or Zach, 
Zechariah, and says, uh, hey, you're going to have uh, John the Baptist. He tells him about John the Baptist. And remember, he's the one who, who uh, curses him and says, hey, because you didn't believe me, you're not going to talk for a little while. Okay, and in, in that conversation, uh, he makes this claim, my name is Gabriel, and I stand before the Lord of hosts. Okay, so this is the angel Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Sounds pretty important, right? Okay, so this Gabriel, this man, whoever it is, likely God, says, hey, Gabriel, help Daniel understand what's happening here. Later on, uh, Gabriel is also the same angel that appears to Mary and says, hey, you're going to have the Son of God, okay? A pretty important figure uh, when we think about angels, okay? Not many named in the Bible, I believe only two, and Gabriel is the first one uh, that that is named here, okay? Uh, So a pretty significant individual in the heavenly realm, it seems that Scripture would tell us, okay? Uh, So Gabriel, uh, give this man an understanding of what has happened. He's seeking to understand uh, this man, God likely, uh, tells Gabriel, help him to understand. Verse 17, so he came near, Gabriel comes near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was terrified and fell on my face. This is a regular happening when angels appear to people. Uh, they are terrified and fall to their face. They're overwhelmed. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the, to the time of the end, okay? So here, here's the verse, that phrase, the time of the end. That's where some of our religious friends say, hey, this is about the end of time. But if we go back up just a few verses, what was the question? that the Holy One asked, how long will this last? Okay, and now Gabriel is saying, okay, well, this vision that you've had is about when this will end. It's not about the end of time. It's not about the second coming or anything like that. It's about the ending of the, the persecution that Daniel is being shown by God, okay? Um, verse number 18. Now, while he was talking to me, I sank into a deep sleep. All right, that's just funny to me. Because I watch you guys too. Uh, no, that's just funny that, you know, he, there's an angel talking to him and he falls asleep. That, but I think that's, again, speaking to his mental state, just how overwhelmed he is. He's just exhausted uh, mentally from this happening. Uh, I fell into a de- deep sleep uh, with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up straight. And he said to me, behold, I am going to let you know what will happen at the final period of indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Again, not the end of time, but the end of these punishments that are talked about and asked about in verse 13. Uh, then we get to verse 20, okay? Um, and he explains it. We've already talked about this part. We, we, as we were walking through the vision, we explained what, what Gabriel explains to him, okay? That the ram is... Uh, is um, the Medes and the Persians, and the goat is Greece, and the horn, and, and all those, those types of things. We've talked about how Antiochus uh, IV is probably talked about in verses 23 through 25, uh, but then let's, let's go down to verse 26. Um, and it says, And what had appeared about the evening and mornings which has been told is true, but as for you, conceal this vision, for it pertains to many days in the future. Okay? So he explains it to him, and, and all he explains is what we've talked about. Okay? He, he, didn't, he didn't mention Alexander the Great because that wasn't Alexander didn't exist at the time. He didn't talk about Antiochus IV, but he says Greece and the Medes and the Persians. And that's really all that he gets, okay? Uh, and, and then he says another, to us, seemingly an odd thing. Hey, don't tell anybody about this because it pertains to many days in the future, okay? Well, many days in the future, if you look in um, verse 1 of this chapter when it talks about the third year of Belteshazzar, uh, or Belshazzar, that's probably around 539 B.C. If you look in verse 25 where it talks about uh, what Antiochus does, and if this is Antiochus, as, as I believe that it is, uh, that's around 175 B.C. It's a minimum of 360 years between prophecy and fulfillment. A minimum, probably longer. Probably more like 400 plus years, but a min- minimum of 360 years. So, so Daniel receives this vision 
Why? Is he going to be able to stop it? No, he's not going to be able to stop it. The Medes and the Persians are coming. The kingdom of, of the Greece, Greeks are coming. Alexander the Great is coming. Antiochus IV is coming. These things are going to happen. So why is he told this to begin with? Why is he, uh, what is the, the point of this? Well, I think part of it is, is for you and I to look at it thousands of years later and say, wow, that's amazing. God, Daniel through God, was able to not fully comprehend, but was able to understand this predictive prophecy that happened literally hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened. Okay, so that's, I hope you take comfort in that, uh, that the God who's able to predict the future knows what's happening in your life. That's a, that's a big deal. But it doesn't make it mean it's easy. Uh, look, notice Daniel's final response in verse 27. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Why is he exhausted and sick for days? Well, I mean, Daniel is already in captivity, right? And he's already been there for decades. And, he, and the, the people of Israel are already suffering. And God basically says, hey, it's going to get a lot worse. Lots of really bad things are going to happen. And so he's exhausted, and he's sick, and he's worried, and he's concerned, and he's got all of this concern within him. And then he says, then I rose up again and did the king's work. He's still working for Belshazzar, uh, but I was appalled. I was appalled at what had appeared, and there was none who could make me understand it. Now, that, that last phrase, there was none who could make me understand it. Well, God told Gabriel, the angel, the mighty angel, hey, explain this to this guy, help him understand it. So he helps him understand it. He knows the Medes and the Persians. He knows, again, the Medes and the Persians probably exist at this point, but they're not to the power that they're going to become in, in just a few short years. The, the, you know, Greece certainly exists at that point, but Alexander the Great isn't born yet. The kingdom of the, the Macedonians or the, what will become the Grecian Empire doesn't exist the way that it does yet. But he knows the, the names of them. He could tell you, hey, in so many years, in so many ways, in so many things, these things are going to happen. Let me explain these to you. But he's not, he's not saying, help me understand it historically. He's, help, he's saying, help me understand it emotionally. Help me understand it spiritually. God, Why? Why? Why are these things happening? I don't understand it. And again, you and I have probably been in places like that before. God, why? Why are these things happening? Why is this the way that you're doing it? And it's, it's a struggle. It's, it's something that, again, in each of our lives, we probably have things that we struggle with and try to wrap our minds around. In his, uh, his book, the book, again, I'm using for this class, Michael Whitworth, uh, the, the Derision of Heaven, uh, he uh, quotes a, a lady who's talking about uh, she is a meeting with a, a shepherd in Scotland who told her how he treated his sheep for insects, okay? Now, I'm assuming this is not any time recently uh, where there's, you know, medicine for that kind of thing, uh, or maybe they still do this. I don't know. Uh, but I want you to, to listen to this and, and help us to tr- kind of understand when God is doing things that we don't get and we struggle with it, like Daniel is struggling with it in Daniel chapter 8. And again, if Daniel can't get it, you ain't got a hope, okay? If Daniel, the, the, the dream understander, the guy who is applauded and known through 70 years of service and three different empires, if he doesn't get it, if God doesn't give it to him cleanly and, and purely, then we're, we're never going to understand it fully, maybe. And maybe, maybe we're not even going to understand fully what happens in our lives, okay? But notice what this, uh, this lady said about uh, what the shepherd would do to help his sheep uh, be treated for insects. 
The shepherd would take his staff and run it under the horns of the ram. And then he would turn the ram upside down and push his head and body under the healing water. Again, the idea, I guess, being of drowning the bugs. The ram would kick and flail, trying to get away from the shepherd, but he was not strong enough. The shepherd would push him under for 30 seconds and then bring him up. The ram would be frightened, gasping for breath, still trying to get away. Then the shepherd would take his staff and push him under the healing water a second time. He wanted, the shepherd wanted so desperately to be able to tell this poor little lamb that everything was all right. That what was being done was for his good. But such knowledge was too wonderful for him. Passing past him finding out. For the ram, it was just a bad day. For the shepherd, it was just part of his plan to give his little ram the best. In our lives, when things happen and we don't get it, God, why in the world would you let this happen to me? Why in the world would this bad thing come about in my life? There will be many times when we do not get it. And maybe not all of those times, but some of those times, and certainly through all of those times, God can bring about our good for his glory. That's what Romans 8, 28 talks about, right? That we can, God works all things together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Doesn't mean that good things always happen to us, but good things can always come from what happens to us. All right, so Daniel chapter 8, that's a lot. I spoke a long time. Sorry about that. We'll get out of here in just a minute. Um, we'll talk more about Daniel in January when we can get back to it. Um, what, what's, what's the application for us? Again, first of all, I think from, Romans chapter, or from uh, Daniel chapter 8, God is able to predict the future. God knows what's going to happen. And then secondly, let's take comfort in the fact that in the midst of our trial and our difficulty and our confusion and our just not getting what's going on, we can have hope and faith in the God who knows the future. And we can know that he is going to work things together for our good and his glory. Uh, so, so take comfort in that. I hope that you do. And I, man, I've been there. I've been in the, in the midst of not knowing and not understanding and not getting it. And I don't have all the answers that I want about those times. Just like you don't have all the answers you want about those times. But I still trust God. And isn't that what Daniel is all about? Over and over again in the book of Daniel, it looks like God has no power. And over and over again in the book of Daniel, God says, I'm in control. Not the kings, not the empires, not the future, not the past. I'm in control. And he's in control of your life too. And in control of the whole world. And we can take comfort in that. Not necessarily always understanding it, but always knowing who is in control and what he's going to bring about. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, or if you're a struggling Christian, welcome to the club. So are we. We're struggling too. We're just trying to make it. And if you need help, if you want to need our prayers, we want to pray for you. If you're not a Christian, you haven't put Christ on in baptism to wash away all your sins, named him as your Lord, confessed your belief in him, we would welcome you and challenge you to do that tonight. You can do that publicly as we stand and sing in just a minute. Or if you want to do that privately and let us know and let us help you in whatever ways we can. We want to help you on your journey towards heaven. And we need your help to get there too. If you have any needs tonight, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.